All right, if you would, turn to, turn to uh, the book of Esther. And let's look, we're going to be looking in chapter 5. Now, let's just do a quick review. Haman the Agagite has created a plan motivated by his hatred and his murderous intentions towards the Jew because of his personal animosity towards Mordecai. Haman is now the second in command of the kingdom. He has been elevated by Ahasuerus, the weird and weak king. And so Haman Haman expects to be honored at all times, and Mordecai does not do that. And so because Mordecai does not do that, Haman has great hatred for him. And so he wants to kill him, and to satisfy his desire for revenge, he not only wants to to annihilate Mordecai, but he wants to annihilate all the Jews throughout the Persian kingdom as well. And so he deceives King Ahasuerus into signing an edict to do just that. Mordecai, though, prevails upon Esther, his, his cousin, who has been taken into the king's palace, who has wowed the king and has become the king's wife and queen. And so he... In, he, he prevails upon her to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people to save them. Now, to do that, she must fully identify with the people of God, regardless of the cost to her. And in chapter 4, we read that she recognizes that, and she says, if I perish, I perish, but I will do this. And so as the chapter ends, as Devin talked about last week, she calls for a fast in which she will participate and all of the Jews will participate. And after three days, she will enter the king's court and she will risk death to ask for his help so that she can save her people. And even though God is never mentioned in Esther, it is not a far-off assumption for us to think that these Jewish exiles do remember that they are God's covenant people and that he has delivered them in the past and he can deliver them now. And even though they are in exile, it's, it's right for them to plead for his mercy because he has always been merciful to them. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, a famous, a well-known verse to you, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. That is what, that is what Esther and the Jewish people are hoping for. And that is what this three-day fast is about. And now we, we get to chapter 5. On, on the third day, verse 1, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes after this fast and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. A lot of details about exactly what is happening here. But what we see in this, and this is, this is if I, as I've been going through this, I've been talking about 
three things that we see throughout Esther and each, each time I'm preaching, Devin didn't do this, but each time I'm preaching, the setting, the story, and the surprising hidden providences of God. Devin went another direction. Four scenes, and it was, you know, and I listened to it. It was good, but <laughs> it was great. It was an outstanding message. It was. <laughs> And so now we're in the setting. The fast is over. And Esther is entering into the king's inner court. Now, in May of 1977, the first Star Wars movie came out. And the country was enthralled. And the lines were incredibly long. And the movie ends, as you remember, with Luke destroying the Death Star. And at the end of the movie, all the heroes are honored. All the, the resistance is there. And, and he, they're getting medals. And, and it's a great ending. Well, three years later, 1983, another movie comes out called The Empire Strikes Back. It's released, and again, the country is enthralled. Again, the lines are long. But this time, the movie doesn't end with victory. This time, the, the movie ends with suspense of whether or not the resistance will be defeated by the Empire. And most importantly, is Darth Vader Luke's father? And then the movie ends. And we don't know what happens and we have to wait another three years until the return of the Jedi comes out to find out what happened. And in, in those three years, the speculation was incredible. No, he's not Luke's father. He's Luke's brother. No, he's not. He's this, this, he's that. And the suspense was palatable. In a similar way, this is where we're left at the end of, of chapter 4 as God's people fast and Esther prepares to go to the king not sure whether she will live or die. Will she perish? She is unsummoned by the king, but anyway, she enters the king's palace. And at this point, she's already violated Persian law by coming into the palace without being summoned. And so she goes all the way to the inner court and she stands in the doorway where the king can see her. She is dressed in royal splendor and along with her, her great beauty, of course, what does she do? She attracts the king's attention. Now, archaeologists have uncovered, uncovered carvings of Persian kings sitting on their thrones with scepters in their hand, depicting them as they're holding the royal scepter, and standing right next to them is a royal guard with an axe. And depending upon the king's mood and his favor or disfavor, one or the other will be extended to the person who enters the king's throne without his permission. And so imagine that is what Esther, she steps in the inner court, she's in the doorway, she looks, she sees the king holding a scepter, and right next to him is a royal guard with an axe, and one or the other is going to be extended towards her. She does not know which, but she walks by faith 
even though she does not own what the outcome is because her risks are many. She's uninvited. The king could easily respond in anger and immediately put her to death. As soon as she, I mean, and the risks get even broader because as soon as she identifies herself to the king as Jewish, she comes under Haman's edict of death and she, she has lied to the king and she is going to ask him to repeal a Persian law that is put into place and Persian law says that you cannot repeal Persian laws. That, that is Esther's situation. She is, she's just having to take a risk. And, and you know, at times, there are times in our lives like Esther where we take similar risks, not risks of death, but where the outcome is unknown. Do I stand up for biblical values at my job? Or do I compromise? Do I give up that well-paying job to follow God's call to where I'm supposed to be? Do I stay silent when I should speak, risking alienation from friends or neighbors because I stand up for God? Do I duck or do I share the gospel? Many times we are faced as believers, as those who follow Christ, with risks. And we might, we might say, we're just going to stand in the doorway or do we enter all the way in? Well, Behind Esther's winning Ahasuerus' favor, which she does, and, and as we see this in, in verse 3, verse, verse two, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. She wins favor. And behind that winning of Hashrush's favor is God's sovereignty. We, we must see that in, in Esther's life and we must see that in our own lives. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. It is... The NIV that says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it like a water course. And what we know is that Esther's not aware that God is at work, but God is at work turning the king's heart. And, he sh- and, and the king looks at Esther and he shows her mercy and kindness. This, this is a gracious act of a king who holds the power of life and death in his hands. And it's also this, this scene right here of Esther going into the courtroom, this scene of Ahasuerus extending the scepter and not putting her to death is a prophetic picture of the gospel. Had God not extended the cross to us, we would die in his presence. And on that third day after the final judgment transpired on the cross, Jesus rose from the dead to imperishable life, guaranteeing safety to all who enter into the presence of God by Christ's saving grace. So, listen, the title of this message is The Gospel According to Esther. Because in these 
pages where we see this history, this story, this Old Testament experience of, of Esther in the background and on every page of Scripture is the redemptive work of God. And, and in, in some ways, hiding behind the, the shadows of this story is the gospel. David Strain, in his commentary, says, This is what is happening in Esther 5. Three days under the shadow of death, and on the third, not death, but life, which of course is immensely suggestive of another upon whose shoulders the duty of acting on behalf of the people of God fell. The heroism of Esther in the throne room of Ahasuerus, as dramatic as it was, pales before the heroic deliverance from death won for the whole people of God by the Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered for our trespasses and on the third day raised for our justification. Life, not death. This is what he won for all who trust in him. Esther's story is a shadow of the one to come who does far more than she. Esther wins favor and is spared unjust condemnation, but Jesus, who was not guilty, was nevertheless made the object of divine wrath and was condemned. Esther lived, but Jesus died that we might live. He did it instead of us. He died, and the just for the unjust to bring us to God. That is the good news we have. Apart from faith in Jesus, we are guilty before God and under the sentence of death. But Jesus died that guilty sinners like us might live. The golden scepter was held out to Esther as she acted on behalf of her people. She was spared, but Jesus was not. He died for his people at the cross. The good news is that the sentence has been fulfilled, the penalty satisfied for anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's the story of Esther. The story of Esther is is this, this prophecy about what's to come. The story of Esther being bold and courageous is just a shadow of the one who is to come. Now, because of Christ, when we approach God, it's not like us having to approach a hash rush. Our knees do not need to tremble, nor do we need to cower in fear, wondering if we'll survive the encounter with God. What a contrast to to Esther's experience. Ian Duguid tells us, our God invites us to come into his presence regularly, indeed frequently, so that we may make known to him our petitions and requests. No special subtlety is required in framing ourselves. We don't have to put on robes of royalty. We don't need flowery court language or crafty psychological maneuvers to trick God into giving us what we need. On the contrary, he is a father He is a father to us. And even if earthly fathers provide good things for their children, how much more will our heavenly father give us the things we need to grow and prosper? This contrast is not because there is no cost to gain to the king. However, our entry to the heavenly court is free, but it is not cheaply bought. As sinners, a death is required before we can enter the presence of all holy one. God can hold out the golden scepter of favor to us only because the fierce rod of his judgment has fallen upon Christ. 
And so that's the setting. That's what Esther is going into. But that's the setting for us, for the future, as, as we have come to know Christ. Now the story goes on. Verse 3, and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, Pause. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. I will tell you why I've come. So against all hope, Persian law is not viciously applied to Esther. Esther wins favor, and, and the king offers up to Esther far more than she could have expected. What is your request, Esther? You can have half, up to half of my kingdom. Now, is that really what he is offering her, up to half the kingdom? Most, most commentators, most historians would say that that's a bit hyperbole, but it is a, it is a generous one none, nonetheless. But he doesn't really mean half my kingdom. When, when Marilyn and I were living in Atlanta many, many years ago, um, we had a dear friend who lived in South Georgia, grew up in South Georgia on a farm in the middle of nowhere. There wasn't a stoplight. There wasn't a McDonald's. There wasn't a 7-Eleven. There was just, it was just like one street called Cobtown, Georgia. And David and I would go there fishing and camping because it was a great place to go. But, but they had a church there and they had expressions, South Georgia expressions. And one of those expressions was after church, when church was over and you're walking out, you would say, as you said goodbye, you'd say, come go with us. Come go with us. As though you're extending hospitality to come home and have a meal. God forbid you should ever come go with us. <laughs> that would be deeply offensive. Because nobody meant it. They just said it. Just to be southernly gracious and kind. But they really, they didn't mean it. And, and, and that is similar to what is happening here. She has the king's favor. He's offering half his kingdom, but he really doesn't mean half his kingdom. But what she does, rather than responding and saying, okay, I'll, I'll take half the kingdom. Here's the half I want. No, no, no. She shrewdly defers. And she offers him another feast. Now, because this is where the inner court is where all this takes place, the inner court was a place filled with all these officials. And, and so the, the last thing Esther wanted to do was acknowledge, first of all, that she was Jewish in front of all these officials because it would, put, it would put the king in a bad spot where he would have to address the situation, her lying, as well as her, the fact that she is Jewish and she's under Haman's edict. So, so she pulls him apart and says, listen, I just want to have a feast with you and Haman. And so that's where, that's where she is doing all of this. And once, so once she tells Ahasuerus that what he, she wants, she, she has to tell him she's a Jew. 
So she just says, you know what, let's, let's hold on. Let's, let's have another feast. Because it's going, to be, it's going to be trouble when I reveal who I am. Now, don't misunderstand. Ahasuerus knows he's got to have some idea. He's not that dumb. He's got to have some idea that what Esther wants to ask is important because she risked her life entering the throne room without his permission. That, that was what she did. But he, he was willing to wait to hear her answer because she's his queen, she's his wife, she's beautiful, and she is laying out one seriously good feast. And now she invites him to another feast. And, and he's not going to... He's not going to refuse. In fact, I mean, look at the end of this feast. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared in verse 6. And as they were drinking wine, well, that is one of the things that Ahasuerus really likes to do. He likes to drink. And so everybody is in a merry mood. And so he is agreeable to do this. He is all in with feast. He is all in. So, so no doubt Esther has prepared a great meal um, and, and astutely she has served wine. And so now, you know, she's just, she's just drawing this out. Esther is stirring up his curiosity as well. In, in a sense, she's teasing him. He could have ordered her to tell him everything. But it seems like he likes playing the game. And Haman, Haman's just there eating. He has no clue why he is there. But, but he revels in it. And he's unaware that Esther has plans for him that will change his life. Now, what, why, why does Esther invite the king and Haman to a second banquet and not say anything at the first one? Is it, is it not the right moment? Is it she lost her nerve? Or I, I think... I would surmise she is, she is playing him like a fish. She is reeling him in and letting him out. She's reeling him in. She's got him on the hook. Because he has already, he has promised her twice, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So now at this second feast, he's really put himself in a position where he cannot refuse what she asks. She's, she's set him up. And he can't lose respect by not giving her what she asks. Now, in the meantime, let's look at verse 9. So the feast is over. They're coming back the next day to another feast. Everybody's happy. Everybody's got what we want. And then verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Why was he joyful and glad? Well, he's been drinking wine. He's been at a feast. And he's been with the king and queen. And him alone. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself as went, and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. So though here he is. He's just left this great party, this wonderful party, and he, in, he's on cloud nine. 
He's alone invited to a feast with the king and queen. How special he must be. And as the party ends and he's merry with wine and he's proud of himself and he's silently celebrating in his heart who he is. This is who I am. I am Haman, the second in command. And I, I alone get invited to these feasts with the king and queen. But when he leaves the king's palace, standing by the gate, not kneeling, not worshiping, standing by the gate is Mordecai, his hated enemy. No longer in sackcloth, he refuses to bow down. Now, undoubtedly, I could just see their eyes meeting and the intense hatred between the two. Brian Gregory, in his commentary, said this, as quickly as he felt pride stroked by the royal couple, he now feels it wounded by his most hated nemesis. That is Haman's experience. But, but Haman... Haman restrains himself. Nevertheless, verse 10, Haman restrained himself and went home. He restrains himself and he doesn't reveal to Mordecai how he feels. I think it's because he doesn't want to give Mordecai the satisfaction of getting under his skin. But he goes home and he is beside himself with Anger. Verse 11, and Haman recalled all his friends and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, like his wife didn't know how many sons he had. And all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Haman is having this great personal celebration of who he is. How special he must be. He spends all this time honoring himself, but this feel-good moment has gone bad as he leaves the palace. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow, I'm also invited by her together with the king. I'm going back again. Yet... Yet he says in verse 13, all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. During his pity party, he gets counsel from his wife. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, again, the gallows, when when we think of gallows, we think of being hung by the neck with a rope. This is not, these gallows are actually a pike, that's a stake. And so they're making a stake 75 feet high to impale Mordecai on it to humiliate him in death. Because Mordecai has humiliated Haman. Haman wants to humiliate Mordecai. And so his plan is to meet with the king first thing in the morning to get permission to immediately put Mordecai to death. And so the tension builds as we come now to the close of chapter 5. But what we see Esther's plans and Haman's plans are on a collision course. 
And that's, that's the story of what's happening in chapter five. Now, I've been saying for the number of weeks, the third thing is the surprising hidden providences of God. But I think at this point, having read Esther and you've read Esther through, there are no longer surprising hidden providences. You know they're there. And, and, and we're looking for them. By now it should be evident in Esther's story that God is working powerfully but silently behind all these events. Th- think about all that has gone on. The king did not have to extend the scepter, but he does. He did not have to ask what she wanted, but he does. He did not have to come to her feast, but he does. He did not have to honor her request to have Haman at the feast, but he does. He did not have to agree to a second feast, but he does. He did not have to wait until the next day to hear her, her request, but he does. Because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. But the providences of God are, are, are even more pronounced Who knew that Haman restraining himself in verse 10, nevertheless Haman restrained himself and went home. Who knew that Haman restraining himself would actually save Mordecai's life? I mean, Haman was the second most powerful man in the kingdom. The edict to kill the Jews had already gone out. The only thing restraining Haman from killing the Jews then was because he had rolled the dice, so to speak, and said, okay, the, the, those who practice divination have said, we're going to do it 11 months from now. But he had the power in his hands to immediately kill Mordecai. But he is restrained. Who restrains him? Well, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Who knew that Haman restraining himself would actually save Mordecai's life? Who knew that Haman waiting until morning to kill Mordecai so he could speak to the king about putting him to death would spare his life? Okay, we'll wait till morning. I'll speak with the king in the morning. Well, here's the thing. Haman and Mordecai and the king and Esther are not aware that there's a chapter 6. (laughs) and something else is going to happen but that's next week when we find out if Luke is Darth Vader's son (laughs) who knew that Ahasuerus wouldn't be able to sleep chapter 6 and then read about Mordecai's heroics who knew that when Haman built the gallows for Mordecai that he actually built them for himself Oh, brothers and sisters, all these hidden providences, all these workings of God behind the scene is just a picture of how God works, not just in the story of Esther, but in the story of your life as well. Every every moment along the way, what, what looks like disaster is only God at work. And God... God, as we see here, God is faithful to protect his people. God is faithful to care for his people. Does that mean that, that in a sense, tragedy or disaster or pain or suffering never strikes those who are God's people? No, it does. We are are at times battered because we live in a broken world. 
and the, and the ravages and the effects of sin upon our lives is why the world groans. It is why we groan. It is why we look to a greater and better than anything we will ever know in this world. God is providentially at work. Now, Esther has thought out her plan carefully. She has prepared it well, but she doesn't know if it's going to work at the next feast. And what she cannot see is that all her efforts and what is happening behind the scenes, that, that, that she's never aware of what God is doing. Yes, she demonstrates faith. She demonstrates courage and boldness and shrewdness. But God is the one in, he is the one guiding by his invisible hand all of the events of everyone's life. Listen, that, this story should give you confidence in the God who is sovereign, who providentially cares for you moment by moment. Not, not a second ticks by that God is not aware and involved and at work in your life because he cares for you and he loves you and proven by sending his son to die for you. Centuries later, we see all of what takes place in Esther in, in the reality of the Gospels, but with an even greater act of faith of certain doom at a place called Calvary. Listen, throughout Jesus' life and ministry, his sights were set on the cross where he would willingly die for his people. He would walk in faith into the blackest darkness and the horrifying emptiness of the death and the grave. That is what was before him. And when, we, when, when, when he looked up, think about this, when he looked up, his father looked away. When he cried out to his father, all he could hear were the mocking voices of his executioners and the silence of being forsaken by his father. He faced death absolutely alone, but he remained faithful. Yes, Esther is this picture of sacrifice, of her willingness to take a risk. She's a picture of being faithful, to following through, to save, to try and save God's people, her people. Yes, she is this, this picture. She has gone from being flawed to being faithful. But Esther is not who we look towards. Christ is who we look towards. All alone and totally forsaken, he still trusted his heavenly father by crying out, into your hands I commit my spirit. Silence, alone, forsaken, and still he commits his life into the hands of his father. And his disciples... The cross seemed like a failure because they failed to see God at work behind the scenes. The Father was guiding this event by his invisible hand to complete his larger purpose of salvation through the death of his Son. A salvation that has been won for us and that we enjoy. And so let's not, let's not look to Esther. Let's look to Christ. 
So as we seek to be faithful to God, to walk in his ways, to face risk of standing up for Christ, we do it without the privilege of sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. But when we are walking by faith, we walk with knowledge that God is at work providentially behind all that we are doing. We do this until we no longer need faith at all because that is the day we will see him face to face. (laughs) Esther had to make a choice. Would she identify with God and his people or would she hide as a pagan and then just enjoy the spoils of her life? Would she live as royalty or as a child of God? Would she risk all or would she duck and cover? Like many biblical heroes, like I said before, she goes from being flawed to being a person of faith. She walks by faith and not by sight because she does not know what will happen. And, and as we will soon see in Esther, she will meet reward, not disaster. Now we face the same dilemmas in our day-to-day encounters. We, we take a risk for the gospel. We, we must take a risk. Will we take a risk for the gospel or will we duck and hide fearing what might happen if we stand up as the people of God? My friends, when we came to faith in Christ, we made a public profession of that faith. We determined to follow Christ. We determined to take up his cross daily. We determined that that we believe there is no profit in gaining the whole world but losing our own soul. So each day, we have a choice to be faithful to the gospel or to compromise. This life... And it, you may not have heard this, but just so you're aware, this life has term limits. <laughs> we only have so long in this life to be faithful. For God's glory, let's finish the race well so that we here, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That is what we can learn from Esther's story as we look to Christ. Keith and Kristen Getty have a, a, a song that um, is, is one, of my, one of my favorites. It's about grace. And, and one of the re- refrains is, So I will go wherever he is calling me. I'll lose my life to find my life in him. I give my all to gain the hope that never dies. I bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow him. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us, let us do that, even in this world that can be so difficult because we are the people of God and we, we relate and live and exist in the church of God that we might, we might display the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you that we have one to look at that is greater than Esther. We have Christ to look at who who was faithful to the cross, faithful that we might live because of him. And Lord, now we are grateful and we thank you for being able to enter into your throne room without fear, without concern, that we would be in some way at that moment 
experiencing the consequences of our sin because Christ has forgiven us. And so, Lord, we, we take joy in that. And we thank you for the grace that we do receive when we come into your presence. In Christ's name.